The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed their health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. Robert Edward Grant is an accomplished sculptor, artist and musician. He additionally holds several patents and various intellectual property in the fields of DNA and phenotypic expression, human cybernetic implantology, biophotonics and electromagnetism. He has multiple publications in unified mathematics and physics related to his discoveries of Aussie prime numbers, which is a new classification for prime numbers, the world's first predictive algorithm determining infinite prime numbers and a unification wave-based theory connecting and correlating fundamental mathematical constants such as Euler, Alpha, Gamma, and Pi. Robert holds a BA from Bryan Young University and an MBA graduating with honors from Thunderbird, the American Graduate School of International Management. Additionally, he has attended the President's Seminar at Harvard Business School 09-16. He has lived and worked in nine countries and speaks Japanese, French, Korean and German fluently. In what he considers his finest achievement and crown jewels, Robert is father to two beautiful daughters and lives with his wife and youngest daughter in Orange County, California. To find out more about Robert Edward Grant, please please visit his website at robertedwardgrant.com. Robert, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you, brother? I'm doing great. How are you? Mate, I am fantastic. I am really looking forward to this podcast because I don't believe I've ever had anyone like you on the podcast before. <laughs> I don't know quite how to take that, but... <laughs> I'll take it as something good, I think. Here's the thing, right? I look at your work and I would be what I would call a lay person. And part of what I do is as a bridge between the maybe not so normal 
approaches to life and philosophies to life and bringing them into a larger mainstream audience. And mm-hmm. we cover topics such as health. We talk about psychedelics or plant medicines. We talk about love and sex and all of these different beautiful ingredients that make up this delicious life that we get to experience. Mm-hmm. And you popped up on my radar recently as somebody that I've been very, very intrigued about because as a young boy, one of my greatest passions was mathematics. It made a lot of sense to me and I felt quite at home in that study, more so than any other studies that I, I delved into through my academic career. Mm-hmm. And I know that you are one of the most renowned mathematicians and the way that you look at the world is through a very different lens than most people would look at. So I would love to start off just by asking you the question, what is it that you do and why are you drawn to the work that you do? You know, I think I was born curious in general, and I've always had this desire, I think, to try to understand the root cause of things. Mm -hmm. I was probably that little kid when I was three or four years old that just kept asking why why my daughter who's three years old does the same thing and with my elder daughter who's now in her 20s uh, she used to ask me why why all the time and i'd finally say because because <laughs> i give two because's and then she'd be like oh okay because if i just said because she wanted to kind of chase down the rest of the answer and she just kept asking more and more why so maybe it's a hereditary thing i don't know but i certainly grew up always wanting to understand the root cause of things and that applies to cosmology and physics and mathematics. And mathematics I love because it was the ultimate in objective disciplines. There's no sort of subjectivity, or at least the way we look at mathematics from a sort of global perspective today. We tend to think of mathematics as the most objective of all of the disciplines of education, right? The different fields of education. One plus one equals two. There's not another answer. Mm-hmm. There's only one answer. And in a world that we live in that is extremely hyperpolarized and very subjective with fake news and everything else, I thought, you know, mathematics is something that you could literally turn to and find total objectivity. But in that objectivity, I was also astounded to find that some of the most esoteric philosophies and approaches and ways of looking at the world could also be found within that high degree of objectivity. And so, you know, that's probably what spurred my interest and wanting to understand some of these questions that had vexed me and probably several other people for quite some time. And what are some of these questions that have vexed you? (laughs) Well, you know, I think we live in a world that I would say is defined by reductionism. And I think it's a function of capitalism. So we are all taught that everything we live in in this world, whether it's real estate or natural resources or Time is scarce, right? If you want to make money, though, in general, you have to buy low and sell high. Mm -hmm. So this means that when you go to school, there's always going to be this push to go more and more into hyper-specialization, to choose very early what your career path is going to be. Because if I could become very, very specialized in a certain field or discipline, then I could command the highest amount of money uh, that that field could potentially command, right? So Now, if I want to get a PhD in biology today, it's very difficult to get a PhD in a very broad topic like biology. I have to go and do research in a hyper-specialized field that maybe it's related to nanotechnology and biology, Mm -hmm. right? Or micro-specialization. 
And this is, I think, one of the big problems because I can understand why we're pushing people towards this hyper-specialization because then they can command more for their time. Because if I'm the only nanotechnology expert in biology, then I can command more for my hourly rate, right? And so it's basically lumping scarcity on top of scarcity. First, scarcity of knowledge, and then scarcity of time, right? That takes a certain amount of time to get a PhD in, in this field, for example. And, and so this is all a function of capitalism, that we are taught to try to maximize our time and our scarcity to get the highest amount of return value. Mm -hmm. And we see this all over the place. You know, if you want to take the most abundant resource on the planet is water. Would be referred to, if aliens, I guess, could see hypothetically Earth, they would refer to us as the blue planet because they would see all the water on our surface. And yet, we, to make more money and to focus on sort of the commercial benefit of it, you know, we have to put it in bottles to then tell people it's scarce, then we can sell it for more. Hmm. Even though Earth is a closed-loop system, we can never run out of water. And by the way, I've spent time on an aircraft carrier where they're using a nuclear reactor and running ocean water on top of it and turning it into steam and then turning that into 50 million gallons a day of clean drinking water. But that doesn't really support making all the money off the industry that is selling the most abundant resource on the planet. Hmm. Right. So everything that we have done in capitalism, I am definitely a capitalist, but I believe in finding balance in these things as well. Everything we've done is about maximizing scarcity's value. And I've just never believed in scarcity. And I think that it really hurts our education system as well, because what it means is that we have people coming out of school with this micro specialization that can't really ask the bigger, deeper questions and aren't even really well equipped because they aren't seeing the language that connects all these different disciplines of thought. And that's where I've spent most of my time and effort and research activity is across many different specialties, taking a very broad, holistic, or more of a what's referred to as a polymathic approach to problem solving. And one of those big problems, candidly, was prime numbers. So I wanted to understand, you know, we tend to live in this reductionistic world that believes empirically in entropy more than it believes in organization. It believes in randomness more than pattern, mm -hmm. right? And so one of the things that we had assigned to this patternless world is that there should be no prime number pattern. There's no pattern associated with prime numbers. Well, I started looking at this problem and I took a more of a musical approach to it and also a wave-based or sort of physics approach to electromagnetism and waves and I said, okay, well, if I were going to look at this, what would make sense for me to arrange these numbers in some sort of spiral because they're not going to be on a table? You know, we tend to think about the periodic table of elements in chemistry, and we refer to it as a table, but nature never does anything in tables. It uses spirals hmm. because everything is conformance to a wave pattern. So I started looking at it. I thought, well, if I were going to make a wave pattern, then what would be the right modular arithmetic model to look at to see if I could identify a pattern. And I identified that 24 was that exact pattern. The reason for 24 was that if I took all numbers down in Fibonacci sequence, right, which is 1 plus 1 equals 2, 2 plus 1 equals 3, 3 plus 2 equals 5, and then it goes to 8, 13, 21, 34, 55, 89, 144, and 233. Those are Fibonacci numbers, and they are related to each other of roughly 1.618 
the prior, the preceding number. So you just take the preceding number, multiply by 1.618, you end up with the next number in the Fibonacci sequence. And these numbers, when I reduce them down using digital root, which is to a methodology that, that number theorists use, sometimes referred to as numerology, into modular arithmetic or mod nine, what that allows you to do is to see patterns. And then when you reduce it down into such a pattern, you'll see that that Fibonacci sequence is repeating every 24 numbers. Hmm. So there was a pattern in 24. And I knew that this would have been seen before, but I wanted to understand why all the numbers that were in on a 24 module arithmetic, think of a spiral that's like a 24 hour clock, and then it doubles to 48 and then 72. It's just going outward with concentric circles like a spiral does. Mm -hmm. And what I found was that every number that's prime showed up on the same spokes of the wheel. Out of the eight out of the 24 spokes, so the spoke one, spoke five, spoke seven, 11, 13, 17, 19, and 23 is where all the prime numbers were into infinity when you exclude two and three. Because two and three, while they're prime, technically they're what I call primordial primes. They create the harmonic sequence and the harmonic series. And so looking at this from a musical perspective, and saying, okay, why does 24 make sense? Well, it was two octaves, cosine relationship. And in an octave of music, we have 12 notes. And then the 13th note begins the next octave, right? Mm -hmm. So I looked at numbers as if they were musical notes and arranged them as such. And when I did that, I found all these patterns. And I also found that the numbers that were not prime, but were in the same spokes as the prime numbers spokes, were only divisible by prime numbers and products of primes that were greater than three. And so then I was able to create an exclusion criteria and solve one of the problems of being able to predict prime numbers infinitely. Because I looked at it from a musical perspective, that music is the foundation of mathematics. And if you actually go back and look at all the polymaths and philosophers and mathematicians, because back in the old days, you know, they didn't necessarily make the differentiation. People didn't refer to themselves as mathematicians, they were philosophers. Plato is a perfect example of that, who came up with platonic solids. Pythagoras is another example of a musician who was also a mathematician. Leonard Euler, also a musician and mathematician. Sir Isaac Newton, you know, widely recognized as the world's most famous ever mathematician, was also an ardent musician. He was able, as were other of the polymaths and philosophers, they were able to make those connections by looking across the boundaries of disciplines. And the solution is actually quite simple when you're not stuck in a micro-specialization. So that's one of the problems that we've been able to solve, and that has far-reaching implications. But the first and biggest implication for me is that there is no randomness. Hmm. I'm going to ask you a question here then, because looking at the work that you do, you are an artist, and your drawings are of what I would deem to be sacred geometry. Is that correct? Yes. Geometry, to me, is sound that's suspended. Okay, explain that for me. Well, you may be familiar with cymatics. If I took a plate, a metal plate, and I poured salt on that plate, mm -hmm. and then I excite the plate and vibrate it to musical notes, there will be standing waves that will be created on the surface of that plate that will move the salt, sort of like a marching band on a field. Mm -hmm. And it will move it in these incredible orderly patterns and the higher the frequency or beats per second or hertz frequency will make a more and more complex geometric pattern. You can find this just by going on YouTube and looking up sound or sand resonance. 
you'll find calandry plates being used at all different frequencies, and they make these beautiful shapes and patterns that don't look dissimilar to what we would look at when we're looking at a snowflake, which looks like sacred geometry on a snowflake. Basically shows that nature has a language, and that language is frequency. And that language has you know different forms. One would be the musical form. The other one would be the geometric form and shape. And so one of the things that I had realized working with Eric Rankin, when we worked on the Sonic Geometry series, Sonic Geometry 2, which I was executive producer of, basically we've, and you can find that on YouTube as well, on my page, which is Robert Edward Grant, but you can find it on its own. But looking at Sonic Geometry, if you take the geometric shapes and just do a straight conversion into Hertz frequency, if I take a triangle, it has a sum of angles that are interior angles of 180 degrees. Mm-hmm. So 180 degrees. So then I look at a square, and a square has 360 degrees. So you've got four times 90 degrees would be the interior angle sum. Mm -hmm. So 30 degrees. And a circle is also 360 degrees. So a square and circle have this unique characteristic that they're both 360 degrees, even though there's no angles on a circle, right? Mm -hmm. And then we look at a pentagon, it's 540 degrees. And you look at a hexagon, it's 720 degrees. Then you look at a heptagon, which is a seven-sided polygon, it's 900 degrees. And you go up to an eight-sided polygon or an octagon has 1080. Now, interestingly, you'll notice that all of those numbers of the interior angle sum add up to a digital root of the number nine. So 360 is three plus six equals nine. Mm -hmm. 180, one plus eight equals nine. A pentagon is 540, five plus four equals nine. 720, seven plus two equals nine. 1080 is one plus eight equals nine. And 900 for the heptagon is also nine. Mm -hmm. So without exception, all polygonal and platonic geometries, even polyhedra, three-dimensional geometries, will end up with a digital sum of the number nine, without exception, infinitely. Now, unless you looked at and understood that there's a, a way to derive a digital sum, you'd never even notice that all geometry has a digital sum of nine. Now, if we took that and we applied it to music, and now let's say we took the triangle and said it's not 180 degrees, it's 180 hertz. Mm -hmm. That's in F sharp in Pythagorean tuning. Then I do 360 degrees, which is the square. And that's giving me 360 degrees or 360 hertz now in this conversion. That's giving me another F sharp, but an octave higher. Then 540 degrees converts to 540 hertz, which is a C sharp. 720, which is the hexagon, and make that 720 hertz. And that's giving me an F-sharp again. So I started with F-sharp, F-sharp, which is 180 and 360. And then it goes to a pentagon, which is a C-sharp. And then I've got an F-sharp again. And then I go to 900, and I go to 1080. And those are giving me the rest of the notes in an F-sharp major chord, which is the most beautiful chord in music in five-part harmony today. So here we've just taken the polygonal geometries and applied it to a Hertz conversion for frequency. And now I have a perfect F-sharp major chord in five-part harmony. Which means? Which means that geometry is music. Geometry is just suspended sound. And the correlation and understanding this was such a big revelation because to me, I was like, wow, well, does it work for all the polyhedra, the three-dimensional geometries as well? And sure enough, it does. And you could take this infinitely. It's always going to be a beautiful F-sharp major chord in this five-part harmony. It just goes up and up and up. So how does that relate to you and I and the living world that we inhabit? 
I would say it's like this. We have been living in this world without an understanding of what's really going on in the world. Like we've been missing the story. You know, I used to live in South Korea. In South Korea, I learned the language. I speak several languages and I lived in South Korea for two years. I lived in Japan for two, lived in Hong Kong for a year. So I learned the language. I lived in Australia for three years. My eldest daughter was born in Australia. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, when I learned Korean, it was a difficult language to learn because like we use Latin as the foundational basis for the English language, mm -hmm. it's either Germanic or Latin. And some of the Germanic stuff is based on Latin too. So basically we have Latin as our foundational basis. Well, in Korea, they have a foundational basis of root words, which are Chinese characters. Now in right around the time of the Korean war, South Korea and North Korea too, decided to stop really using Chinese characters to represent their words. And they use a phoneticized language instead. So that's the Korean language. But all their words are still based on those Chinese characters. But in Korea, as a matter of ease, because it's a lot harder to learn the hieroglyphics of Chinese, the Koreans decided to just go with a phonetic language instead. So this means that in Korea today, unless you learn the Chinese characters, you don't really know the full meaning and context of all of your language. Hmm. It's like you only learn the phonetics version without knowing that a family is represented by, you know, a family sitting by a fireplace under the roof of a house. Hmm. And what I'm saying to you is that our understanding of mathematics is very similar. It's limited because we only have the dimension of understanding its phonetic by way of comparison. The analogy here applies. It's like we learn math only to learn its phonetic, to learn its basic stuff and information, but we're missing the real message that's being told to us through mathematics. And mathematics and geometry and music, its other manifestation, are the means for us to communicate with that universal language. That's why when we look at geometry, something, you know, people say that they see something, that they don't know what it is, but it sort of touches them internally. It speaks to them at a deeper level. It's almost like our brains are able to read it like a QR code. By looking at the geometry itself, it's almost as if our brains have a QR code reader. Geometry for us is the same way. When you look at geometry, very often people report that they feel some deeper communication happening. And it's like somehow interacting with their subconscious level in such a way that it's creating some potential for profound change. And it's the same when you listen to music. Some people will have an emotional experience when they listen to music. But looking at geometry and beautiful architecture is just another medium of the same thing. It's communicating mathematical ratios in what is the universal language. The universal language is mathematics. And that universal language is something we have only understood at a very cursory, very superficial level because we've not been applying its context to music and geometry and cosmology and also consciousness until very recently. So let me ask you this one question then. Over the last so many years, I have explored different psychedelics and plant medicines that are part of the natural world. And upon ingesting certain ones or types of these psychedelics, often you will go into a state where you will experience and the only vision that you will see is like what you're explaining, these very sacred geometry or geometric patterns. Mm -hmm. And in some of them, for instance, I ingested 5-MeO-DMT, which is a, a buffo of various toad. 
And in that experience, there was frequency as well as vibration, as mm -hmm. well as the sacred geometry. I felt like I was it, if that makes any sense. So yeah. why, when we expand our consciousness, do we get a glimpse or an understanding of this sacred geometry, frequency, vibration, this language where we don't really get to experience in our walking or awake everyday lives. I've never done DMT or ayahuasca, but I'm certainly not against people doing it. I think that it's a, a great catalyst for many people as they report. I personally have not uh, needed it. And in fact, I've had some people say, oh man, you should never take ayahuasca. You're going to like never come back type of thing. <laughs> so, you know, I won't go as far as saying that. But what I will say is this, that the way that the universe communicates with us is through number and geometry. That is the universal language. And we have been looking at mathematics as a tool for us to add and subtract and divide and multiply and do all of those things, rather than looking at it as a language to the universe itself and with. When you start noticing synchronicities in your life, Carl Jung talks about this, seeing numerical synchronicities over and over again, 111, 333, 444, et cetera. That is a trigger of the universe wanting to communicate with you. Now, we could go into a long, dark sort of rabbit hole of what is the universe itself? Is it related to our own consciousness? Well, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle would suggest that maybe it is, that you cannot remove the observer from the observation itself, and therefore inherent biases that go along with the observation by the observer will have an impact on the outcome itself. Mm -hmm. So therefore, and this has been you know, well-documented on many different areas, and this is one of the things that Einstein himself referred to as spooky action at a distance. He was <laughs> looking at entanglement and also the milieu of entanglement to this uncertainty principle that somehow the observer is impacting the observation, that, that you can't remove that observer from the observation itself. So I think that the way the universe wants to communicate with us is through this language of number. And if you think about it, you know, this is why Carl Sagan, when the Voyager uh, uh, spacecraft was going to go up, the first thing that they were trying to figure out is, you know, what are we going to put as a placard on the side of Voyager in case it's found by some alien life form? Mm -hmm. And you know what they put on there? They put a picture of a man and a woman. It's quite a famous picture. And also you can see the Voyager spacecraft kind of next to it. And the man's kind of a waving. You may have seen this before. And then they put a number on there, which was the alpha constant. Because Carl Sagan believed if we could basically show our level of intelligence to a third party that would be X planet, right? X Earth. Then the one thing that would show our level of intelligence is our understanding of alpha constant, which is really important from the perspective of the separation of light from darkness, for example. So a threshold energy, you know, go back to chemistry class, when you excite an electron that's in an orbit around a nucleus, that electron will either absorb light and jump to an outer shell, or it will stay where it is in its current shell, and it will reflect light. So the threshold energy where that happens is 1 over 137, which is 0.00729735. There have been movies made about this number. I mean, like whole film storylines about this particular number. And so they put this particular number to signify mankind's understanding of the mathematical constant uh, that's dimensionless, 
called the alpha or fine structure constant. It's a math language because it's dimensionless. It means, and they chose this above pi, they chose it above Euler, they chose it above all other sort of mathematical and physics related constants. It doesn't matter what the value is, it's based on ratios. So this understanding is such a fundamental part of this language of the universe that it was put on the Voyager spacecraft. Because it's not like, you know, if the Voyager spacecraft, which just recently left our solar system and is now in interstellar space, if it was found by some other party outside, they're not likely to speak English, but they are likely to understand math. Math is not something that is ever invented. Math can only ever be discovered. Some would disagree with me on calculus on that one. But <laughs> I would say to you that math can only ever be discovered. And its discovery is a function, in my personal view, of a broad perspective and also a polymathic view, which allows you to cross disciplines. And it also requires a different level of consciousness. It's dimensional. And so that's why I think, you know, for the most part, we are not taught this kind of understanding of geometry and music and this combination of these three different areas that are perceived as totally wholly separate disciplines and all of science along with it as well. And therefore, people are only taught the mechanics of mathematics, which is addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, taking things to exponential powers, etc. But everything that we do, everything that we see, everything we observe is really a mathematical equation that we're making with the universe, at least at a subconscious level. I'd love to go back through history because you've mentioned, you know, some of these amazing scholars and philosophers and musicians and mathematicians through the time. I want to go back to the pyramids because from my understanding, they're one of the most accurate forms of measurement and mathematics. And some would say, harmonic vibration that has ever existed on the planet that has been, I guess, constructed by us or by something. What has been your fascination or realization looking back through history at these pyramid structures that inhabit the earth or that have been constructed on the earth in many places around the world? Yeah, you know, it's a fascinating topic. I just got back from Mexico. I was there with the Sim Airmane, a friend of mine, and and the Resonance Foundation, and I had the honor of guiding the group that was there of just under 100 people to Teotihuacan, which is the Mexican Pyramid Plateau, just outside Mexico City, and running a comparison of the mathematics of the Giza Plateau versus the Teotihuacan Plateau. And I can tell you that while they may not have been the same people that built these structures, they were based on the same mathematics and mathematical understanding of whoever built both of these sets of structures, and not just here, but also in several other places, including China. Uh, there was just a pyramid that was just discovered just this past week in Peru as well. And literally pyramids exist kind of in so many different places around the world. And the mathematics that went into building these geometric structures is so exact, so precise, that, you know, it's really undeniable. And they're all relational to each other. And now you might ask, how did that happen? And I don't honestly know the answer to that question. Anyone who says that they know the answer to that question is not really telling the truth because nobody really truly understands how is it that the Mexicans that were indigenous to Mexico, you know, thousands of years ago would have had the same knowledge that the builders in Egypt had, you know, X thousands of years ago. And all of the knowledge that's based on this is based on the same harmonics of music. 
So you could say that these are harmonic structures. Well, all geometry, as I said, is suspended or frozen sound. Mm -hmm. These are harmonic structures. And they almost act like speakers. I was in the Giza, the Great Pyramid in Giza Plateau in 2017 and 2018. And I'm hosting another group there early next year, in 2020. And I've had the opportunity of spending three nights in the Great Pyramid. And it's not open to the general public. It's certainly not on Airbnb. (laughs) (laughs) But I was able to get access to the Great Pyramid for three nights. And, And one of the nights I was totally by myself. Wow. And it was a really amazing experience and eye-opening experience. The pyramids have housed within them all of the mathematical constants that are the most fundamental and most important to our understanding of mathematics today. So let's say that there was some alien civilization, right? And the way they would assess our ascension or our intelligence would likely be, since their language that's universal is mathematics, Right? They probably have a different spoken language, but they understand the language of math. And math, by the way, is a language whereby the nouns are numbers, the verbs are the math constants that have irrational tails, like pi and phi and alpha and Euler. Mm-hmm. And these are verbs of action, sort of like appending an ing to the end of any noun, you've turned it into a verb. And that unfinished action is the ing part. So therefore, it's an irrational number that goes on forever and ever, infinitely. and then. The syntax is arranged in geometries that are inscribed within circles. So think of geometry as a sentence, Mm -hmm. a different way of looking at geometries, and then pair those several geometries together or more complex geometries, and you have more complex information being conveyed. The thing that I would believe that aliens would care to see how sentient we actually are, how intelligent we are, is going to be how many mathematical constants we understand as a civilization. Today, across math and physics, there's about 80 math constants that we have a good grip on. That would be sort of like trying to speak a language, understanding only 80 verbs of that language. You can communicate with 80 verbs, like a caveman probably, but you can't really fully converse in the language of mathematics. As we gain higher knowledge and understand more about the irrational numbers and the role they play, we can become more facile with this language of mathematics. The fact that actually the number of infinite irrational numbers and mathematical constants is an infinite number because everything in math is infinite. Just like I can take a word like text and turn it into a verb, texting. So I have an infinite number of verbs that I could create. I could come up with a new word like Google and I could say I Googled it and turn it into a verb. Or I'm Googling it now. So in order to be able to adeptly communicate in this language with potentially more advanced civilizations than our own even, and this is why they put the Alpha Constant on the side of Voyager in 1970, you know, mid-70s when it went up. And I think this is fundamental understanding that we are now only just starting to get a true grip on, that this language is meant to be able to communicate so much more. And I think within this language, we can find answers about who and what we actually are. And that's what's most exciting to me. Yeah, I've got a word written down here for you. And it's a word that I've, I've explored with many of the guests on the podcast. And it's the word purpose. Do we have a purpose as human beings? You know, that's a very, very deep question. Mm-hmm. I believe the answer is yes. I've studied quite a bit about 
world philosophy and world religion. And I'm not a religious person per se, because one of the things, I think there are two things that I've learned. You know, someone asked me recently on uh, social media, what's the most important thing that you'd learn that you you could convey to people? I would say it's two things. Number one, don't judge other people because truth is only a perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a a picture that I post on social media, which shows a shadow of a geometry against the wall. And one angle of the wall shows the geometry showing up as a shadow of a circle. So you could surmise that the object that's creating that shadow is probably something round like a circle or maybe a sphere, right? Mm -hmm. Then you look at the other side and you see a square because you're not actually seeing the perspective that the geometry that's hanging, that's causing the shadow of both a circle and a square might be a cylinder, Hmm. a reference point. And in fact, you could have virtually every geometry and people looking at it could say, I saw a circle. No, I saw a square. No, I triangle. We shouldn't judge other people, whatever their circumstance is. And the more we judge other people, all we're really doing is judging ourselves. One of the things that you mentioned was when you were on your psychedelic journey, that you had said that you felt like I am that, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I try to do now every time I find myself, because we all do this, wanting to judge somebody else negatively or harshly, I try to stop myself and say, I am that, I am. The thing that I was going to judge about them is actually my own subconscious being reflected back to me because it's something that I am unaware of about myself. So we, we notice people in today's world, it's like, who was it? It was uh, Melania Trump, right? She decided that her big cause was going to be to stop internet bullying. And then everybody laughed because they said, well, wait a minute, isn't her husband like a big internet bully? Hmm. <laughs> so, and by the way, I'm not making political statements about you know, for or against Donald Trump. It's just, mm-hmm. that's what we're saying. And I think that that is the case more and more in the world today. The things that we call out in other people are the things that we ourselves are tempted by or suffer from. So I'm going to repeat that. Let me put it a different way. We will attract all the things that we judge in our lives until we no longer judge what we're attracting. <laughs> so non-judgment is probably more of a Buddhistic approach. I'm a believer in non-judgment because I now recognize that truth is multifactorial. Mm. It's multifaceted. And I can't remove my own bias from looking at a situation. And by the way, maybe the reason why I'm seeing all the things, maybe I'm attracting these things that I'm judging because I continue to judge those things I attract. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, is that the golden mean really does apply. You know, the, do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself. Judge not lest you judge yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And those are the two basic things. Everything else, candidly, probably doesn't even really matter. Maybe the reason why we're here to have this human experience is to understand those two principles, first and foremost. And maybe we need to learn this language of mathematics or geometry whatever the catalyst is to get us to understand that principle, that we really are the same as everyone else on the planet, that we are our brother's keeper. We are his keeper and he is our keeper or sister. We all are dealing with the same issue over and over and over again. And 
until we learn to stop judging, we will continue to have the same experiences over and over and over again. So if that were in and of itself a purpose by itself, it's a pretty powerful purpose. About 25 years ago, I attended what you would call a spiritual workshop that I spent every weekend over a year attending. One of the things that really resonated with me in that learning as being a student with this group was that they believe the future of health would revolve around two things. It was to do with light and sound, Mm -hmm. frequency and vibration. Mm -hmm. They are the ultimate tools for balance or alignment and homeostasis and conscious evolution. What are your thoughts with that in regards to the work that you do? I think it's absolutely tied in because I believe that we use pharmacologic, and I've worked in the pharmaceutical industry for a long time, and we use pharmacologics. It's kind of like if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Mm -hmm. And we use pharmacologics and understand that there's always a trade-off. There's a quid pro quo that's being made because there's always going to be some negative side effect from whatever it is that we do. That's because we don't know yet how to play DNA like keys on a piano keyboard. Hmm. And it was one of my goals as early as 1999, when I worked in research and development at a company called Coherent in the Bay Area. I had this vision that one day we'd be able to have an understanding of the mathematics of DNA to the point where we could play DNA nucleotide pairs, which are adenine, thymine, guanine, cytosine, and then uracil through transfer RNA, that we could actually play those like keys on a piano keyboard to turn off certain responses and turn on responses that were desired, right? Now, this is a whole field now called gene editing. Now, you can get there through pharmacologic means, or you can go direct to source because you're dealing with the wave, which is the DNA strand itself, and you can potentially make edits or, you know, manipulate desired effects of DNA in biological organisms. And this could be done solely with sound and or light in combination. So we're talking about an end to cancer. You're talking about potentially anti-aging, you know, forever. You're talking about all the ailments, Alzheimer's, et cetera, that you literally found waves through these light and sound waves that you could actually change the protein synthesis related to amino acids that are then selected because of the combination specifically of the nucleotide pairs. Now, one of the things that we discovered, and I filed patents on this, and I just got three patents issued in this field, was on mathematical combinatorial analysis of DNA using digital root methodology. So something as simple as, this is kind of funny, but... Mm -hmm. I looked at it, I said, well, how would nature have a counting system? And and I thought, well, its counting system would be the number of protons. So carbon has six protons, right? Oxygen has eight, nitrogen has seven, and hydrogen has one. And in all those combinations, those are the four elements that make up all DNA. Mm -hmm. You can add sulfur in there too for the sulfate backbone. But outside of that, there's nothing else. And when you reduce them down to a digital root numerical analysis, you'll find that lo and behold, it creates truly a binary code. That it literally is a binary code. And I work with Jonathan Leaf, who's probably the world's expert on this 
and he's just over the next office over for me right now. And Jonathan has figured out how to predict protein synthesis based on nucleotide pairs through the mathematical combinatorial analysis using digital root to do it and through the codons. This means that we are not that far away from being able to know which frequencies turn on certain nucleotides combinations and turn off others, which then impacts amino acid creation and, by extension, protein synthesis, which then changes everything. So one of the patents that we have is on changing phenotypic expression, which includes diseases and sort of proclivity towards certain disease states and gene markers and all that stuff, changing phenotypic expression using light and sound frequencies to change that phenotypic expression Hmm. through protein synthesis. That goes exactly to what you're saying, the future of healing. Future of healing will not, in my opinion, be pharmacologic. It's going to be electroceutical. Hmm. I have another deep question for you here, Robert, and I'm going to revert back to a couple of weeks ago. I was in Costa Rica attending an ayahuasca ceremony for a week, and part of that process in one of the ceremonies was I experienced myself in a state of what some may call the infinite possibility realm and the overwhelming nature of being in that experience or that consciousness of infinite possibilities was terribly frightening for me and overwhelming because what I experienced was that we are in complete control of our perception of the world and what we could create. I'd love to have your understanding of that because for the next 24 hours, I was overwhelmed to the point I was crying pretty much the whole day and I felt like my whole perception of reality had been shattered. And then I got put together in a very, (laughs) I came back together. It took me about 24 hours or so, but in a more, I guess, robust and profound way. And and I feel like a, a different person having experienced that realm of infinite possibilities. That's so beautiful, right? When you have that kind of experience, it is a very beautiful thing. But you know, as you think about it, you asked about purpose and I'll touch on that and then get to your question now. Mm -hmm. How could we ever know what pleasure is like unless we experience what pain would also be like? Mm -hmm. How would you contextualize what pleasure is like at all? You'd have to have an opposite condition or a dualistic existence to be able to experience that truly. Mm -hmm. Because the absence of pleasure is not the opposite of pleasure, right? The absence of pleasure is not the opposite of pleasure. And the opposite of pleasure would be pain, right? That's a different thing. Mm-hmm. The absence of pleasure is just sort of like, you know, you're sitting there and you don't feel pain, you don't feel pleasure. You're just nothing. But it's through the context of that duality that we can experience and truly learn what is pleasure. And if you were, you know, an omniscient or an omnipotent being and you were all light, How could you really understand yourself? You couldn't really understand yourself unless you put yourself in a circumstance to understand each of those elements of yourself. So it's like you could never know if I said to you, oh, the sky is so blue and so beautiful. If you lived in Southern California your whole life or San Francisco or whatever. And I said, you know, you just have to go to Alaska because the sky is so blue there. You would never understand that context if all you've done is grown up 
as an Inuit, you know, indigenous person up in Alaska and seeing that's the only sky that you've known your whole life mm-hmm. because you've not seen a sky that looked foggy and hazy and nasty and polluted. So we learn by experience and we learn with these experiences over and over and over again, I believe, so that we can have that context. And sometimes I believe it takes multiple lifetimes probably to have that full span of experience across duality. So that then comes back to purpose. You know, are we here? Because you said that, you know, we are co-creators, at least, at the very least, right? That we have absolute control over what's happening. And I used to believe very strongly, in fact, vehemently believed in uh, free will winning the day and that there was no such thing as destiny or fate. I believe that free will, you know, you could basically will things to happen and make it happen. And then I realized something very different and profound, which was that what if the free will that we're referencing is actually the free will of the higher self? And we are simply calling it destiny. And the two actually coexist at the same time. So I now fundamentally believe, I've changed my perspective on this, I'm more of a believer now in this concept of a higher self so that we're going to learn and experience all the different perspectives of duality and sort of graduate through that process. And I think this is very similar to both Buddhistic thought and the study of the Bodhisattvas, as well as a lot of the you know Indian and Near Eastern philosophies. And that's probably the place that I would subscribe the most too. I just got back from visiting with the Dalai Lama, and I took a group of scientists and mathematicians with me, including the Simhermain, and, and we spent in total almost five hours with His Holiness in Dharamsala. And it was an incredible experience, I have to say. When the Dalai Lama turns to you and says, do you think that science will be able to prove the existence of a God? That's a pretty profound moment in your life. Hmm. And I got to experience that. It was fascinating. I was able to moderate the discussion. It was one of the great honors of my entire life. But I fundamentally believe that we are here for a purpose and that that purpose is possibly getting to know ourselves more than anything else. (laughs) And the way we can communicate with that higher self is through geometry, mathematics, music, art. This is all the language forms of communication. And learning mathematics is not something to be hated or abhorred in school. Learning the true mathematics is looking at it as a language of communication with the universe itself. Two other words I want to explore with you is expectation and intention. Often we have expectations, and and obviously in mathematics, you have an expectation. Would that be correct, or is it an intention to work out a a problem or something new? How does that apply in everyday life? So, again, I gave a TED Talk called Beautiful Minds Are Free From Fear. And I chose the title not because I was trying to say people that had beautiful minds are free from fear. It was because the, the conference name was Beautiful Minds. And what I was trying to get the point across was that being able to free yourself from the shackles of fear and not deny fear altogether, but to experience it and let it pass through you can be dealt with by, at least in my own personal experience, replacing every time I fear feel fear with gratitude. Because I fundamentally believe that no matter what happens to you, it serves a higher purpose. And I believe as well that everything that happens to me 
I can perceive as either being the best thing that happened to me or the worst thing that happened to me. It could be a cylinder, it could be a square, it could be a circle. It's my choice. And if I think I can or I think I can't, I'll be right. Hmm. So this notion that, you know, basically we look at life and something bad happens to us. Nobody can say whether it's good or bad. Only we make the choice and whatever our choice is becomes our expectation. So if we perceive a set of circumstances as meaning something good is going to happen, very likely we're going to get what we expect. If we perceive a set of circumstances as something bad is going to happen, very likely we're going to get what we expect. You know, you read the in-flight magazines and they say, you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate, right? (laughs) I believe that we generally get what we expect. Now, what role does intention play in this? We have the ability to connect with our higher selves and to communicate. And when you have a very strong intention on something, this is why the secret and visualization has worked for millions of people. Tony Robbins included, me included. You know, I'll tell you a little secret about this. Whenever I'd feel fearful that something bad was going to happen, the first thing I would do is I'd go and buy the watch because I used to collect watches. I don't anymore, but I used to go and buy the watch that I've been wanting for a long time. Even though I didn't need another watch, I just buy this watch. And the reason I would buy it is I would buy it for myself so that It was a gift for overcoming the fear that I had felt that day. Hmm. So let's say that I was fearful that my company wasn't going to be able to succeed or was going to go bankrupt or something like that. And there was some milestone I wanted to achieve to avoid that negative consequence or outcome. And so I visualized the positive outcome and I gave myself a gift as if I had already achieved it. So I started thinking about that intention as if it had already happened, like it was already past tense. And every time I would look at my watch, I would remember, because I look at the time, I would remember that moment in time where I already congratulated myself for overcoming this demon or this boogeyman that I was afraid of in the future, but I already seen it as it had already happened in the past. And I solidified it with an emotional state by feeling happy and elated because I had succeeded. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I would do that over and over and over again. And I remember meeting Ellen DeGeneres, and I met her in Parrot Key. I was going on vacation. It was right after the Academy Awards, the first time in 2007 that she had hosted the Academy Awards. And she did an epic job. And I remember asking her, I'm like, how, you know, did you want to do that your whole life? Were you always wanting to be host of the Academy Awards? The only other person I thought that did as good a job as she had done, candidly, is Hugh Jackman, mm-hmm. who I thought was epic. He did an amazing job. But when I asked her this question, she said, you know, since I was five years old, I used to play like Dollhouse and I would play like I was on the stage at the Academy Awards. Hmm. And she said, and I found out that that was not the right vision for me to have. I said, why? What do you mean? She said, well, because then I would have nightmares about getting on stage at the Academy Awards and choking. Like I I forget my lines. I couldn't remember the next joke and I freeze. So that was my nightmare. So I said, so how'd you handle it? She said, you know what I did? I started focusing on reading the newspaper headlines the day after the Academy Awards on what a good job I had done. And Hmm. that's what I focused on for many, many years. Because I didn't want to just get on stage to host the Academy Awards. I wanted to be successful on that stage. Hmm. So that was the vision that she solidified and she burned into her memory through her intention. Right. So in the context of what I was talking about earlier with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, If you can collapse a wave function 
a wave of possibilities can turn into particles of action that already occurred. Hmm. So this is why I would buy watches to collapse a wave function. And that would be the solution for me. And every time I did that, I found it was consistent with my own higher purpose and my higher self. So, you know, learning to trust the universe that it's going to help make those decisions for you is something you just learn how to do. You know, the first time I had a Tesla for a long time and, and it started with the self-driving thing and it was freaking me out because I'm like, am I going to let go of the wheel and let it drive itself? And just going down a highway and everything, I let go of the wheel and I'm just like, do I do this? Is it okay? And I keep my hands really close to the wheel just in case type of thing. <laughs> and sometimes I feel the exact same way when it comes to navigating daily life. That you have to just get used to allowing the universe and trusting the universe to come through for you. And then it starts to become autopilot. You don't have to fight against everything. There's not so much inertia. You don't have to put willful intention behind every action anymore. I'd love to ask you one more question before we wrap it up, if that's okay, Robert. Sure. It's still with the notion of time. Mm -hmm. And so many people live and have these emotional patterns of what has happened to them in the past, whether it be trauma, whatever it may be. And a lot of people are focusing on the future of what they would like in their lives mm -hmm. or how their life would like to unravel. And I'm going to go back again once more into a psychedelic experience where in that experience, I had the understanding of time is infinite and it's also an absolute and that it, it exists and it doesn't exist. It was all happening at once, but mm -hmm. in no space or time at all. So, and you might have had a conversation with the Dalai Lama about this, but as human beings that are so programmed to recall the past and have these emotional traumatic patterns relive themselves to push us away from choosing those relationships in the future or to stop going down that same path in the future or to set these goals in the future. And with so many, I guess, spiritual traditions saying live in the present <laughs> because that's all we have is now. What's your take from a mathematical background and all the work that you're doing on the concept of now when it comes to the frequencies and vibrations and the mathematics? And should we be looking back into the past, looking into the future? What's your take on this? So mathematically, everything I've said earlier is consistent with the mathematics and the physics that I see. So you could say that when an electron from the past collides with its positron pair that it's entangled with from the future, it releases a gamma photon burst. And that is the moment of observation for now. Yep. There is a X and one over X mathematical equation between the past and the future. And it's a mirror symmetry between the two. So if that's the case, this is part of the reason why I've really changed my view on this and philosophical view as well, that if the future and the past are fully entangled with each other, that means that it's kind of already set. I don't believe in the multi-universes theory or the many worlds theory that there's a different version of me in every single world, although I do believe in reincarnation. And what I believe is that there is really only now. And as I said earlier, that we will attract 
everything that we judge until we no longer judge that which we attract. <laughs> so how does that apply from a time perspective? Well, it certainly applies because the experiences that we keep facing over and over and over again, which are probably just meant to teach us acceptance. You know, if I could give a TED Talk today, instead of talking about gratitude, the next TED Talk I give is going to be on how to replace judgment with acceptance, like full acceptance of self. And that means also acceptance of the time you're in right now. So what I mean by that is that I used to always think, wow, when I achieve this, then I'll be happy. Or when this happens and this convergence of events happens, then I'll be successful and I'll really be happy. And it took me several times to realize, wait, I did achieve those things and I'm still not fully satisfied. I'm still not totally happy. That's the illusion. I was placing conditions on the now and saying that the now would be better if this were to change this way or this change that way or whatever, right? I win the lottery or you name it. I get my new car. I get my new whatever. When actually I should just be accepting the now and loving it and accepting it the way it is without condition. Now, there's a philosophy that says that what we believe we are is our consciousness. And that which we experience around us, all the matter that we see around us, is a reflection of our own subconscious. And the space that connects both of these being conscious, my conscious mind, who I perceive myself to be, separated from the rest of the world, and that space which connects that to the matter world all around me, because most stuff is space. I mean, even my you know, the, the cells in my body are 99.9999999% space. So it's space that connects everything. You could say that I should be able to push my hand right through my other hand because it's mainly space, but it's vibrating. And so therefore I cannot. So when you think of it in these terms, what if the higher self is the space, which is actually the time? Because time cannot be removed from space. In fact, the way we refer to space, it's always in terms of time measurement. It's so many light years away, or it's so many miles away, right? Or it takes this long to get there. Space-time is something that has been inextricably defined as togetherness, one and the same, by Einstein and many of the great philosophers, as well as the physicists of our day and, you know, for the last few hundred years. So the higher self might be the thing that we cannot actually perceive ourselves. And the things that we keep seeing over and over and over in the world around us might actually just be those things about ourselves that we need to learn. Maybe this is why you find so many people that choose certain careers. You know, I'll give you an example. I have friends who are accountants. And every time I quiz them, there are some exceptions, but every time I quiz them, I'd say, hey, what do you like to do for fun? And the first time I'd hear their answer, I'd be shocked. Because their answer would often be, I love to gamble. Hmm. I'm like, why the hell are you an accountant if you love to gamble? Because they are restricting this element of themselves. And they think by being an accountant, I'm going to control this temptation I have for gambling and willful spending. And then I asked them, do you think it's unethical to waste money? Oh, yes, it's unethical. But what's the definition of wasting money? And then I say, well, when you go gamble, isn't that wasting money? Then they say, oh, no, no, no. I know my limits. I know when to hold and I know when to fold. So maybe this is also why we have such a big problem with pedophilia among certain clergymen. Mm. They 
are in denial of this temptation of themselves. And so they want to choose a profession that will hide it even from themselves. And maybe that's the way we live our lives altogether. Maybe the experiences we keep seeing in everybody else are the things that we just simply don't want to see in ourselves. And actually, there's a mathematical equation that basically matches all of this. <laughs> Which is? Mirror symmetry. And how does that work? That's a lot longer than just a few more minutes. <laughs> I'll be happy to do another podcast with you at another time. But basically, there's a mirror symmetry to the world around us. That's why I just published a book, which is really just my mathematical art. But the title of it, and it includes not just art, but equations and everything. And the title of it is The Mirror of Consciousness. Hmm. It's interesting you say that in Australia, I've got a high profile. I'm high profile through the work that I do, but constantly are being challenged and ridiculed by our mainstream media. And I've often thought that the information that we share is just a reflection or a mirror. So when people, or the current, I guess, population and where the vibration is at is not exactly comfortable with what we're sharing from our vibration position. So the reaction that we get throughout the greater population and through mainstream media is that of attack and falsifying and creating lies to keep that vibration where it needs to be for them. It's interesting. I would really love to read your book and I'll make sure I'd go online to purchase it and discover what this may mean. In a simple sense, this axiom works. If you spot it, you got it. If you're calling out somebody else's sin or you're judging them in some way, shape, or form. Look in the moat in your own eye first. And once you start to figure that out, then you'll start realizing what it means to integrate with, you know, the other side of yourself. Hmm. And that's when you can start experiencing empathy and compassion for people around you because they're just, in a way, the way you perceive them, the prism through which you see the rest of the world is a prism of self. Robert? I love you, brother. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been enlightening and whew, it's going to take me a little while to digest everything and I'm going to re-listen to this a few times, I believe. But thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your patience and thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. And thank you for the opportunity to have this discussion with you as well. I'm very grateful for it. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. Where do you live in Australia? I'm actually at the farm, which is just below the Gold Coast. Uh, we've got 20 yeah. acres here, and it's beautiful. It's my place to be in the now, that's for sure. Well, enjoy the farm. I love Australia. It's one of my favorite places in the whole wide world. I have a daughter that's an Aussie, and I really enjoyed my time there. And I love the way – I think Australians in general are much better at enjoying the now than Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, brilliant, brother. I look forward to the work that you're doing and the realizations that you uncover. And maybe one day we'll spend a night together in uh, a pyramid somewhere. Why not? Why not? <laughs> Have a good one, mate. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical, or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any medical condition. 
Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.